I came to sort of the conclusion that interaction effects tend to be overestimated. They're, they're number one, they're actually quite rare. Uh, and then when they're found, they're actually in most cases underwhelming. Uh, and th- in such a way that they generally still produce directionally accurate results. So it wouldn't change your decision over whether to ship a feature. It would just change your estimate of what that effect, uh, true effect is. So I think in some ways, folks who are really worried about interaction effects are really making too much of a big deal. Hey folks, it's Richard here from Experimentation, and today I've got uh, Tim Chan on the line here. Tim is a former data scientist uh, from Facebook. We're going to be talking about uh, his experiences at StatSig uh, and covering a few topics um, such as when it's okay to overlap or isolate tests, um, the concept of interaction effects between tests being overblown, and much more. So stay tuned. Today I've got a special guest. Uh, is, uh, welcome to the show, Tim. Hi, Richard. Thank you so much for having me. Cool. So um, how about we just start it off with... Um, you know, you got an interesting background. Uh, I can see you were previously um, working in various scientific roles um, that weren't particularly to do with uh, experimentation specifically. Um, yeah, maybe just talk about how you, what kind of sparked your interest to get involved uh, as, as a data scientist and experimentation at Facebook. Yeah, I think like I've had a pretty interesting career path, like a lot of other data scientists. Uh, for me, I was. My, I, I love science, I love scientific thinking, and that, that is sort of what led me to pursue sort of a career in the biotech space and doing uh, medical research. Uh, but, on, but another part of me was also really interested in startups, really interested in business. And what I had always thought was my dream job was combining uh, sort of the scientific uh, principles and scientific decision-making and thinking and analytics uh, to the business world. Mm. Uh, that kind of role didn't really exist uh, when I graduated with my PhD, but I think I slowly became aware of this career called the data scientist. And that is my interpretation of what a data scientist is, is that it's applying scientific principles and scientific methods to actually deriving pretty solid uh, insights uh, that can make business sound business decisions. Um, and so once I found that out, I really wanted to become a data scientist uh, had to learn a little bit of Python, SQL, things like that. But uh, and Facebook was my first role, uh, my first bona fide role as a data scientist. Uh yeah. I mean, it's huge, uh, huge jump from uh, was it Galvanize that you were working on? Oh, okay, so Galvanize was basically kind of you you segueing into data science, and then you segued into the tech sector via Facebook. You know, Facebook's a huge company. What area within Facebook were you working within? And- yeah, so when I first started, I joined in 2016, which uh, Facebook was quite a bit smaller, but it was, but it was already a public company yep. uh, by then. So it was still, by all means, still very much a big tech company um, at that point. The first team I joined was on Facebook Gaming. Uh, classically, this was known as the... <laughs> as sort of the team that had been responsible for things like Farmville. So it sort of had like a a (laughs) bit of a tarnished legacy uh, internally at Facebook, also externally. But uh, our job uh, on that team was to sort of make gaming relevant again uh, on Facebook uh, in a way that played very nicely with uh, users and uh, other Facebook content. So uh, and that was a team that was very much uh, growth focused. So we were in charge of sort of making things more relevant for like a younger group of Facebook users, but also bring, make 
uh, Facebook a cool place uh, for gaming content uh, to be sort of shared and be active. And, and, I mean, in terms of the Facebook gaming division that you're, you're part of, I mean, and the growth associated with that, were you specifically just bringing it back to experimentation? Like, how was your role um, tangibly involved in experimentation and growth in that sort of area? Yeah, um, I didn't and, really feel free to Sorry, feel free to discuss any things that you feel safe to maybe share in terms <laughs> of specifics. Yeah, absolutely. So, like, I, I think like, this was my first role as a data scientist, and the way I would describe the role I had was it was more like product analytics, uh, but sort of kicked up a notch in terms of like uh, the scientific savviness. Um, and what I've come to learn was like, you know, you can do a lot of uh, deriving insights from existing data and diving in and applying some statistical methods. But yep. what I quickly found was one of the most powerful tools in the arsenal of like Facebook product teams was experimentation. Um, the ability to like, uh, instead of sort of like coming up with analyses that have all sorts of uh, caveats and assumptions, you could actually put ideas to the test um, in a very quick fashion where you just deploy it as a test, get results back in two weeks and uh, and immediately know whether that idea was good or bad. And the team was, uh, and this was true of all Facebook culture, was folks were exceptionally data-driven. So being the, being the data-driven data scientist wasn't necessarily a key advantage at Facebook, like everybody was data-driven, but helping the team sort of navigate insights and sort of being able to dive in to the harder questions, especially with experimental effects, was sort of my role. And uh, in saying that, I mean, uh, do you mind um, kind of explain uh, maybe tangibly the experimentation culture? Like, what, 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 like what, it wasn't just a team of experimenters. Like, it sounds like you had product managers, maybe marketers uh, internally in the team that could basically have an experiment and... I have a hypothesis and ideate an experiment and launch it on their own right. I'm guessing there was, was it was was there like democratization of experimentation within Facebook as a whole? Is that is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's a that's a great term for democratizing because I yeah. felt like at Facebook, every engineer, product manager, and data scientist was really empowered to set up, run, and own the experiment. Uh, I had even seen like interns. You know, within three weeks of them starting at Facebook, like knowing how to set up an experiment by themselves uh, and be able to operate that. And so this was like really cool to see. And part of that was just because Facebook tooling was made experimentation easy. I know a lot of folks who do experimentation today think that there's a lot of heavy lift uh, you have to do in terms of like making sure that you have your assignment correct, that things are balanced, that you have metrics flowing in, that you're ready for the computations, that you have things like your hypothesis set up. But yep. for a lot of things, I've seen like people make one-line code changes and even put that behind an A-B test. And, and they may make a decision in three or four days just to make sure that it indeed fixed the bug. But what, what I thought was really cool was that Facebook was definitely biased towards measuring outcomes instead of just assuming those would come out. And that in, was done in, through experimentation. Do, I mean... Uh... Was it, um, may I ask, was like, cause, you know, you typically have a roadmap and prioritize your experiments in, in a typical environment. I mean, we're talking about Facebook here, which is not your atypical, uh, your, not your typical business. It's very atypical. Um, uh, was there any sort of ways to, um, I don't know, prioritize tests within, say, the game, you know, Facebook gaming, uh, and be, um, you know, you said like people could create an idea, have an idea and launch it pretty quickly. Was there any um, 
internal QA by engineers and those sort of things, uh, just to sort of make sure that there was a certain degree of quality control. Um, yeah. Yeah, you know, um, we're, we're based in Seattle, and I was part of Facebook Seattle. And what's really kind of neat here is in Seattle, Microsoft is sort of like the big legacy tech giant in this area. Yeah. And Facebook is sort of like the new, sort of like up and was sort of the new up and coming, like new. And, and the two companies, at least we had a lot of folks who went from Microsoft to Facebook, and there was a big culture shift, um, especially with regards to how Facebook approached experimentation and QA. Uh, for example, like, the old way of doing software development was you would go through layers and layers and levels of QA. You'd have large QA teams. Facebook did not. Uh, Facebook believed very much in engineers owning their own QA. So like you yep. would build the feature, but you would also own the fact that like you had done your due diligence and checks. Um, now, obviously, you don't have the ability to test on like 80 different Android devices, your, your feature. But Facebook relied on experimentation as how it would make the, the final judgment. So in some ways, the end user was the QA, and you would look for things like, I mean, at the simplest level, like you would look at things like, hey, I deployed this new line of code. Did crash rates, for example, change? And if they did, what are the set of devices that that might have occurred on? Um, I think that was a big part of it. Uh, I think also, I'll just go back to your first point of like how Facebook sort of approached roadmaps. Mm. Um, Facebook roadmaps were at least goals were very much outcome driven and not necessarily going through a set of tasks and projects to complete. Uh, and I'm told that this sort of is divergent from somehow other companies approach things. So we would have a goal in Facebook gaming that, for example, we may strive to improve uh, retention rate of certain users with certain class of games or with certain products. Or we might strive to be like, um, this product needs to achieve this many daily active users at the end of the half. Um, and so things were very measured and data-driven and metrics-driven um, outcomes. And we would come up with a list of ideas on how we could achieve those metric goals. And those ideas were very flexible in how we approach them. Like we may think we entered the half with a clear idea of like the following five items, if we finish them, would achieve it. But the second we test the first item and we find out it doesn't work, but we actually learn from why that doesn't work, that can actually throw your entire roadmap out the door because you suddenly think that, oh, I have a new way that we think we can achieve the goals. So I would say like the roadmap of items that we wanted to accomplish were very much in flux and we're, we were willing to pivot based on new data. It was quite flexible. It wasn't like, no, we've got this test line up next month and then like, like a rigid roadmap. Yeah, I would say the way we would prioritize, like we weren't rigid in terms of scheduling. You wouldn't have a set of tests queued up and say like, we're going to execute the following five tests in the following sequence. Uh, instead, things were very much driven on what knowledge do we have today and which tests do we think are the most impactful. And those ones would be prioritized first. So everything was very much focused on the goal you were trying to achieve uh, and, and which tests were most likely to drive that outcome. How does it like? How does your role specifically works in terms of being a data scientist with with testing um, um, and the statistical results and so forth? Like, let's just say someone had a, they ran a test, they ran a bit, of, they ran a bit of code. They had the outcome of a test after two weeks. Um, what do you do as a data scientist? Yeah, I would say there's two parts or two ways that a data scientist can influence um, experimentation, at least how I yeah. saw it work at Facebook. Um, the first is really helping to prioritize a list of ideas and experiments that one could run. Uh, and that could be looking at things like if we wanted to improve the conversion rate on a certain page, 
like being able to identify which pages have low conversion rates and believing that there's an opportunity to drive those up. Or if you wanted to drive users to a certain surface or a product, uh, like where are the biggest opportunities uh, for that? So I think a data scientist was quite instrumental in being able to quantify an opportunity size, uh, which sort of projects or experiments teams should be focusing on. I think that, and the second one is uh, helping to interpret experimental results. Uh, I think Facebook, as I mentioned, uh, the company was very data savvy. So like engineers were fully capable and PMs were very capable of interpreting most experiments by themselves, particularly the ones where like there's a clear outcome and a key metric. Um, But where a data scientist was probably most helpful was in those cases where sometimes results were uh, contradictory, or sometimes you had metrics that moved in in odd ways, and being able to sort of discern what is the possible what what is the possible root cause of of some of these effects, and and being able to dive deeper into the data, or being able to understand a little bit of like the principles of experimentation and how that applies. You wrote an article about how maybe overlapping tests isn't as bad as as it is, and I'm guessing your experience with Facebook it sounds like they had a sort of culture of having overlapping tests and not worrying too much about the the noise effects of that. Could you explain that uh, a bit more, please? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, I was I'm classically trained as a scientist, and I know one of the fundamentals of science when you're doing uh, comparisons. It's particularly in experimentation is you want to sort of control for every factor and make sure you're comparing apples to apples. Yeah. Uh, but what I quickly found was in the world of product-based experimentation, um, that just fundamentally doesn't work. And part of the reason is that um, part, of, part of the reason uh, is that like when you're experimenting at that level of scale, like let's say Facebook is running 10,000 experiments. I don't know what the actual number is, but that's not an unreasonable estimate. Um, if you think of, if you assume every test is actually like an A-B test split at 50-50, mm-hmm. that's actually two to the power of 50 combinations. There's not enough users in the world to make sure that everybody is represented properly. And, yeah. it's, and so the only way to sort of achieve that scale of experimentation really is to overlap. But the other advantage that, uh, that companies in, who are doing online experimentation have is really large sample sizes. Uh, and so, and what I mean by really large is like, you know, in the world of statistics, like 30 is, was, was considered like a normal size experiment. Anything over that, like 100, was considered well-powered. In the world of online experimentation, we're talking about like tens of thousands of users. That's actually plenty to where if you were to split that 50-50 um, and actually split that many times 50-50, you would actually end up with fairly representative buckets um, just by pure randomization. And so... and. That is all fine in theory, but what I did see at Facebook was that we were able to overlap experiments quite regularly, and even in times where we swear, you would swear up and down that like these two experiments, just by their nature, have to be overlapping, or sorry, have to have interaction effects, I found that every time we looked into those, they were very underwhelming. Um, I inter- and so it's I came to sort of the conclusion that interaction effects tend to be overestimated. They're, they're number one, they're actually quite rare. Uh, and then when they're found, they're actually in most cases underwhelming uh, and th- in such a way that they generally still produce directionally accurate results. So it wouldn't change your decision over whether to ship a feature. It would just change your estimate of what that effect, uh, true effect is. So 
I think in some ways, folks who are really worried about interaction effects are really making too much of a big deal. Uh, and it's actually slowing the rate of experimentation. Uh, you're, mm. you're now severely underpowering all your experiments because you are trying to keep users in separate buckets. And uh, I have found that this is probably an effect that folks who aren't used to experimenting at scale, I think it's the, usually the first thing they worry about. Uh, and I just, it, it, it's a question we get a lot at StatSig. I mean, it's a question that I've had because, I mean, um, I've just been going by other sort of blogs and having this very purist um, perspective that, um, you know, you want to you, you want to put them into separate buckets to 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 avoid the, the noise effects and interaction effects between tests. And um, it, it's sort of like a purist thing. But I, I think I remember um, Ronnie Kahavi from, uh, was it Microsoft or Bing? At that time, he was saying... Um, through you know MVT MVT tests, multivariate testing, that the interaction effects between you know several components in a test aren't as high as you th- you think, and that, I think that's sort of going along the same line of you uh, as you're you're saying. And would you would you say that these interaction effects, um, your assertion that they're not as bad as you think, would you say that even applies to say I don't know a, a small scale website of maybe say it's got. 100,000 new visitors per month. Uh, One thing I've learned at StatSig, and I didn't have this perspective necessarily before, is uh, you don't actually need that many users to do experimentation properly. What we quickly found, like 100,000 monthly active users is larger than your average StatSig customer um, by far. Mm. And I remember like we would get some of these customers who initially signed up and tried StatSig uh, that may have like 10,000 users, for example. And the scientists in me sort of said like, oh my God, they're about to try experimentation. This is, they're they're, they're going to walk away pretty underwhelmed and, and very frustrated. But, I, sorry, but, are you saying 10,000 users over, overall, not just the one page? We're talking about the whole website gets 10,000 yeah, units per o- month. O- yeah, overall. Um, <laughs> and what I, yeah, and I remember like, I, you know, I'm just, just, I was used to Facebook scale experiment and I had worked at small products at Facebook, but even small yep. products at Facebook would have, you know, 50,000 users, a hundred thousand mm. users. But, and so I would see these small companies and not only that, um, these folks didn't have a ton of experience with experimentation uh, and they were getting started. And so I think in some ways back in my mind, I felt like the cards were stacked against them, but what I had quickly learned, and this was repeated over and over was that most of these companies who are startups, who are just starting to grow and starting to do experimentation, they ended up succeeding. They ended up with these wildly impressive results, like plus 50% wins, plus 80% wins. And it happened very routinely. And after a while, I came to realize the reason was, because at Facebook, like we would struggle to find 2% wins, 1% wins. Um, And the reason I came, my conclusion was, they're working on unoptimized products. They, they're just starting to actually rigorously test ideas. They may have done like design choices when they were first building their product or website, which just may have been like, let's just pick something and go with it. Mm. Um, and now they're going back and actually trying to test these ideas with metrics and get good measurements. And because their products are unoptimized, there's a ton of low hanging fruit. Yeah. There's just like a ton of opportunities to operate here. And they're not looking for 1% win, 2% wins. In fact, I would argue any startup that has aspirations of becoming a big deal, who, if they're looking for 2% wins, they're in trouble. They're never going to hit any sort of like growth goals. Uh, they need to be looking for big wins. And so they are, 
and and they do find them. And so I was pretty shocked and surprised uh, that that these companies were finding these big wins. Uh, it was it was interesting to see results that were like measurements of plus fifty percent increase on conversion rates. The error margins would be like plus or minus twenty five percent, but like yep. that was enough to be statistically significant enough for them to be quite happy with the product that they were getting. Um, pretty good measurements uh, and, and being able to make very clean decisions. So I think it's a myth that you need large sample sizes to do experimentation. I think what is clearly the the bigger effect is like whether you are looking. Uh, is whether those opportunities exist or not. If you have a highly optimized product uh, and have a very low sample size, then you know the cards are stacked against you. But I think for a lot of people starting out their experimentation journey, that low-hanging fruit does exist. They just haven't tried it yet. Uh, I mean, wouldn't you, um, you know, because I've kind of kept to like, okay, this sort of heuristic of, okay, we need at least 10,000 uniques to this landing page or so, so forth to get a general sort of like test that's not underpowered um would you would you say that there still has to be some sort of minimum sort of sample size for a particular test or or, or size or, or page you want to you, you want to test on I, I i'm not a fan of hard and fast rules for like what's the minimum sample size you need for yeah. experiments i think there's a, a lot of factors that go into it such as what is the metric you've chosen to measure um how ac- how precise is that met uh, is that metric and what is the minimum detectable effect you think you can achieve? I think those things uh, tend to get overlooked if you just go with sample size. Uh, and part of it is also knowing your product. Uh, there are times where you know a, a metric is noisy. There are ways to find surrogate metrics. There are ways to find metrics that are better behaved in experimentation that may give you a better chance at picking up, at getting the necessary experimental power. Um, but I'm not a fan of hard and fast rules. I've seen experiments as small as a thousand users um, come up with some pretty nice results. And it's just a matter of what is it you're trying to measure uh, and what is your chance there? I think I, I know in the world of like CRO um, metrics tend to be things like click through rates on buttons. And those yeah. things can be a little bit more challenging um, to move at times. But sometimes if you're looking at driving things like retention, driving things at like um, number of purchases, driving things at um, uh, how long somebody's spending on a session, uh, those sort of metrics can sometimes be a little bit more powerful and easier to move. Sometimes not. Uh, so I do encourage folks to sort of like look at a wider set of metrics, but I wouldn't write off any sort of sample size or traffic. Uh, I would try to instead focus on what is it the what is the top line effect you're looking for. Just sort of backtracking, I know, I know you like you know working on Facebook for what what sort of um, led you to um, start sets that sig and also what 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 learnings from Facebook did you bring over to StatSig? A, a lot of folks who worked in big tech uh, that has a really strong experimentation program probably have the same observation that I did. And many of the folks here at StatSig certainly had that observation as well. It's that experimentation can work at a very large scale um, and be exceptionally powerful at a company. And so what we had seen at Facebook was a set of internal tools Facebook had um, really did sort of like three things uh, to the company. Number one, it made experimentation accessible just by making it easy to use and a good default. Like everybody just, there was not a reason, there wasn't a good reason to not 
ship an, uh, uh, an idea as an experiment. Yeah. Um, the second thing that was sort of unique was experiments. Everybody could interpret experiments. Um, and part of it is finding a way to walk that line of, you know, null hypotheses, p-values, confidence intervals. These are all like somewhat challenging concepts, but at the heart, in terms of guiding people to making the correct decision, um, that is doable. And we, and we certainly saw that at Facebook. Uh, and I think the third result really is when you make experimentation easy and you make metrics really accessible, the results just become automatic, sort of like checking in daily as a dashboard. Mm. And this really, to me, made Facebook a data-driven company. I think without experimentation, Facebook would not have been data-driven. I think that's true at a lot of other companies. And I'm not the only one that's had this observation that experimentation really is how you get everybody bought in on following data, on following metrics, and making data-driven, not opinion-driven decisions. And I think that was great in setting the culture, that it became a culture of ideas and results, not so much of opinions and who could put together well-thought-out arguments that were polished. Obviously, you joined a startup. Um, it's been over two years now. Uh, definitely, do you just want to join a startup or did you just sort of, do they just, you know, ping you on LinkedIn or... <laughs> I've always had an interest in in doing startups, but uh, I think my list of uh, I, when I did my I did an MBA uh, yep. many many years ago, and I actually majored in entrepreneurship, and was very well familiar with startups. And I sort of came to two conclusions. One is that not all startups are equal. Uh, that there is such a thing as a startup that already has success in its DNA. Mm. Uh, but the second conclusion I came to was that. I would never ever find such a startup that I was comfortable <laughs> enough joining. Um, that that became, I, I was sort of proven wrong in the latter because uh, it was a group of folks who I worked with previously at Facebook had approached me to uh, and asked me if I wanted to join a startup. And these were folks I had a tremendous amount of respect for. I really enjoyed working with. And, uh, and I knew that sort of success tends to follow certain people. And yeah. this group was one I was willing to bet my career on. So that's how, well, how I got convinced to join Statsig. But also the fundamental idea that we can make experimentation and product development tools really easy to use, really accessible, and put in the hands of small, medium, and large companies um, was, to me, is just fundamentally something I saw work at Facebook and I think is pretty exciting to unleash on the rest of the world. And um, I'm guessing you're... I mean, to build a experimentation platform from scratch is, is, is quite a thing. I mean, were you highly involved in this, developing the stats engine? Yeah, could you talk about the development of that? Gotcha, yeah. Our, we have a stats engine. Uh, we, we have an internal name. It's called the Metrics Maestro. But mm-hmm. uh, externally, we call that results page Pulse Results. So we yep. do show people their experimental results, and, they, and, uh, and we tell people, like, check your pulse. That's, that's where the sort of the uh, term comes from. Uh, but yeah, I think for me, I had never, I was the first data scientist at this company. It was myself and seven engineers. The CEO is also very much an engineer at heart. So, so it's seven engineers and one data scientist. I was in charge of sort of the data architecture and building the experimentation engine. Um, but also not only that, helping design how does experimentation fit into Statsig? How should mm. results be displayed um, that makes res- uh, statistics accessible um, and in a way that's 
informative and not misleading. Um, that is actually, I think, one of our biggest challenges as a company is like we're actually putting together some, putting in the hands of our users some pretty powerful statistical tools. And it's very important to us that they guide people to best practices and they guide people to make the right decisions. Um, and that's, uh, that's, that's hard to do, but it's something that we think about very much day to day. And that's something which I view very much as one of the focus of, of a data scientist at Statsic. So maybe if you could, I hope this doesn't get too technical for our audiences or even me, to be honest. <laughs> Are you able to explain your stance engine to a certain degree to our audiences uh, in a somewhat not overly laden stat-driven way? Sure. <laughs> yeah, I can. Why don't I tell you like our design philosophy? Um, we try very hard and we do not have any black magic in our stats engine. Uh, yep. The statistical methods that we've employed are very much industry best practices and we know that because we meet with other uh, experimentation thought leaders at other big tech companies. Um, but we stick with experimentation best practices. We stick with very standard frequentist um, readouts uh, and methods. We highly encourage our customers to reproduce our results so that they know how our stats engine works. Um, and that can only be done when we stick to like standard best practices. We have a few things that make um, that enhance statistical significance, such as Windsorization. Uh, we also have uh, Cupid, which is the pre-experimental bias correction. Um, yep. But these sort of things have become standardized and best practices um, for all top experimentation platforms. And we have incorporated those methods into our tooling. You know, because sometimes like, um, I can be a bit wary with certain experimentation platforms calling it a winner or loser too early. Does your platform do that? Does it, does it say... Hey, this is, does it ultimately clear there's a winner? And what sort of guardrails have you put in place? So I, I think, first off, uh, most of our customers are doing what I would call product-based experiments. Um, yep. This is a little bit different than the world of marketing and CROs in that I think product-based experimentation is what Facebook does. It's what um, you do when you are actually building a product and you care about things like time spent, uh, retention, uh, and user engagement metrics, and you care about long-term effects. Uh, for example, if you are Amazon, converting somebody to a purchase today is maybe an objective, but getting somebody to stay a customer for an entire year should be the goal. Like that yeah. is actually what matters to Amazon uh, and what they care about. And so for them, we view that as more of a product-based metric, uh, is sort of tracking these long-term things. Um, I think in, in sort of these products, metrics and... And how, and how the product works can be sometimes complicated and can very rarely be boiled down to a single met, uh, metric. For example, Amazon probably tracks revenue, but they by no means goal every experiment on revenue. Um, they're looking for things like retention, engagement, are people have, do they have healthy browsing activity, um, things like that. And then sometimes if you drive revenue in one area, uh, you have to understand that that might come at a trade-off. Is it possibly hurting another product? Is it mm. uh, if you are if you are pushing a brand new product like Amazon Videos, for example, are you possibly taking users away from another product? I think sometimes these trade offs are very important, and that's why Statsic very much encourages folks to look at a suite of metrics, uh, and we also encourage folks to dive into their data. So if you have questions on an experiment, we do make it very easy to dive in and ask follow up questions on, hey, we're worried about, you know, iOS users and Android users. Like, can we get a split 
my OS? Or we're worried about whether this is cannibalizing this other product. Is there any way we can uh, check in on some of their engagement metrics? And so in that, if you view it through that lens, um, because Statsig doesn't know your product, doesn't know what it is you're worried about, we don't make decisions for you and make recommendations. We instead make it easy to ask questions and get answers. And we think sometimes these, the decision-making can be nuanced, uh, especially when there's a trade-off. Uh, is it better mm. to drive number of sessions is it, or is it better to drive time spent? You know, things, things like that. And if that's the case, uh, that needs a human. Uh, and so we, we try not to rely on automated decision-making for a lot of these complex experimental effects. We do try to make it easy to get answers out of the system and to really understand whether this result can be trusted statistically. Yeah. But uh, beyond that, we, we, we try to present the data to you as if you were looking at a dashboard. Okay. The reason why I ask is because, you know, you, you talk about making experimentation easy and so forth. And, you know, uh, I guess if someone's new to it, they just sort of want to, turn it on and just let, let a computer tell them whether it's one or not. <laughs> hey, just going back to just one of the topics you, you wrote about, I mean, our calls you wrote on the website, just to finish off with that, you know, you talked about 95% stats, uh, stats to rule. It's, you know, it's, um, let's put this in place. Just to clarify, do you have a hard and fast rule on 95%? Or would, would you? Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's absolutely a trade-off uh, between uh, the sensitivity of your experiment uh so uh, I'm a big fan of 95% confidence intervals. Uh, I know folks will criticize it as it's arbitrary, um, hmm. and it absolutely is, but it's a great solid default. I think it's defensible because a lot of people use it. Um, and what I think my number, my, my main observation is that people who criticize 95% confidence intervals usually do it when they're looking at experimental results uh, in order to convert a non-statistically significant result into a statistically significant result. And so obviously like that's sort of that's sort of cheating. You are changing the rules of the game after you've seen the result. And so while I am totally I'm not against folks who want to set a custom confidence interval of like if you want to do 90%, 80% or 99%, um, feel free, but you should do that before you set up the experiment. But yeah. I think you should also have strong justifications in picking those uh, confidence intervals, because to be clear, those are arbitrary as well. Um, uh, but there's certainly circumstances that warrant, for, um, for example, if you wanted to really squash your false positive rate because you're, you're exceptionally risk averse, for example, you may be working on integrity efforts or working on healthcare uh, drug treatments, uh, then yeah, 99%, great. Uh, and on the, con on the flip side, if all you if you want to just if you're more worried about missing out uh, on experimental effects and you're okay tolerating false positives, then by all means, you can lower your confidence intervals. I just don't like it when folks try to change the numbers and the rules of the game uh, and try to bias it one way or the other, uh, especially after looking at the results. So I think 95% is a great solid default uh, that folks should use uh, and go with un until they have learned a little bit more about their experimentation and their risk reward profile. You know, say you're, I don't know, you're on 85% or whatever, and you've been running this test for a month and you're like, okay, well, I can sort of see that these test results have stabilized. Um, we've got another testing test on the roadmap that's due to come out on Monday. Um, you know, the effects on 
if we just should we just hold on to this ninety five percent rule and um, slow down our test velocity, or uh, do we should we just sort of say, look, let's just sort of declare it as a winner? I'm sort of playing devil's advocate, but I'm just sort of yeah. I, I mean, it really really depends on your your tolerance for false positives. Uh, I think there's an argument to be made that the control group is the default for a reason. Uh, shipping new experiences. Uh, can sometimes introduce like new technical overhead, or mm. can introduce like changes to the user experience. Uh, it, it, there's a there's a lot of reasons why, in just a, a given change, why you want to give the control group sort of that default. Um, but if you're not worried about that, uh, and and you see an experiment that is where the test group is beating the control, but in a not statistically significant manner. I, I'm I'm okay with like picking a winner as long as you know that's not a statistically sound result, uh, and you and you are taking a chance that pretty strong chance that this is a false positive. But mm. if there's really no cost to you, that's an okay way to make decisions as well. But I think in a lot of cases, folks want to. There's a reason why we follow um, this 95% co- why we have implemented uh, confidence intervals and p-values is to control our false positive rates because they are costly. And if you acknowledge that, you should stick with those rules of the game. Uh, and after four weeks, if you haven't seen the effect you needed to, it's also possible that that effect is so small that it's not worth pursuing. That's the other case. Um, like if it was really such a great effect, you would have probably picked it up. It's it's probably neutral or probably something not noteworthy. Like that's, that's the other thing. So you're not missing out on a lot, uh, in my opinion, when you're into those borderline cases. Um, mm. And it's best to move on to the next idea. They've also got to consider the sort of from cost-benefit analysis um, about productionizing this. Yeah, I actually think there's a lot of costs to making a change uh, on a website or on a product. And I think there's a lot of things we're not accounting for. Uh, I'll give an example. Is One is like you have existing users who may be used to a certain experience, and now they sort of have to adapt uh, yeah. to a new experience. Uh, new experience. A uh, second one is um, all of your other test results that you've been relying on have been done on a certain on that control group experience. So if you do ship a change, perhaps does that mean you have to revisit all of your other test results? Possibly. Um, mm. And then the the sort of the third one that I can at least think of, and I'm guarantee you there's more, is that uh, your your engineers have sort of optimized a website for a given layout and a given configuration. Uh, and, and, and a certain performance. And sometimes making those changes fast and frequently can, in, can introduce some thrash and can, uh, in the long term, have some sort of degradation in performances and other things like that. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of other uh, hidden costs that are sort of really hard to enumerate, but uh, that's why I think one should be careful about controlling those false positives. Now, there are some folks who have a pretty simple and tight website where like these changes are are very easy to make and they should those companies should absolutely play fast with the confidence interval you know and go with things like 80 percent if there's low risk and they just need to try ideas and and be able to get things out the door that's Mm -hmm. fine um but i think it's one should not underestimate the cost of making changes oh yeah thanks for that it's uh food for thought Uh, it's an ongoing debate on the um on the uh, in that space um anyway thanks for a lot for um your input on these topics and uh you know telling our audiences about um your journey in statsig uh, how can people contact you uh tim if needs be 
Oh, absolutely. I am active on LinkedIn. Uh, And I, and I, and my follower count is pretty small. I would love to grow that if possible. (laughs) They can find me on linkedin.com slash in slash TR Chan, C-H-A-N. Cool. Cool. And um, it's statsig.com, right? And and then you can, uh, yeah. And so you can also find me uh, by following statsig on LinkedIn or we're also, our website is statsig.com. And we do have our own blog as well, where I do publish a few of my articles. Cool. I'm uh, looking forward to more articles uh, and more sort of um, um, ones that go against the grain. Um, no, I'm just joking. Um, awesome. Thanks for making it to the show. And um, yeah, we'll hopefully see you in the future. Richard, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.